Good afternoon. How are you guys? Good. Okay. Well, we're continuing on in our series of the Gospel of Luke called There Is Good News. Uh, today we're going to be in chapter 7. So if you would, please grab a Bible. Meet me in 7 verse 1. Jesus just finishes his sayings of the Sermon on the Mount, and this is what happened, 7 verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one who has built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house, and the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the next story in verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of this town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd came from the town and was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bearer, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole, country, the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. This is God's word. I have a friend of mine who is a youth pastor. And one year, he thought it would be a good idea to take 15 students to one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere. And so he got a bunch of teenagers, and they were traveling across the world, but they had a layover flight going to Houston. And on their way to Houston, their, their plane began to experience turbulence. And this was not the turbulence where the plane shakes a little bit, and internally you have a little bit of fear, but you pretend like it's okay. And then you look at like the stewardess, and you're like, well, they're, they're calm, so it must be okay. But then you realize they've been trained to act normal when it's really bad. So you're like, maybe it's not okay, you know? It wasn't that. It was the plane was completely shaking and everyone was kind of panicking. And Chris was trying, my, my friend was trying to stay calm. And then all of a sudden the plane drops hundreds of feet. And there were two women behind my friend who were not a part of the group. And he heard them going back and forth and discussing how they were processing this. And once they started to drop, one of the women said to the other, okay, I think we need to pray. The other responded, to whom and how? And I think that's a little bit indicative, if we're honest, of how many people see how they are supposed to approach God. That if they want to be delivered from something or if they're experiencing something hard, they know they should probably go to God, but they don't know how. And if they did know how, they don't know who to talk to, right? Similarly, when Qatar just recently hosted the World Cup, the phrase, how do you pray, skyrocketed in Qatar and Google, 100% the normal. 
because people wanted their team to win and they didn't know how to control it. So they said, we should ask God, but how do you do that? And so today in our text, we're gonna look at three different approaches when it comes to God and how we shouldn't and how we should approach God, but then lastly, how God approaches us. So if you will, follow with me in the text. We're gonna start with this Roman centurion. Uh, In case you don't know, a quick history is Rome usually in the Bible is the bad guys. They would oppress Israel and eventually the Christians who start the church. And so you have this centurion and a centurion is is a post really in the Roman government. And you could tell from the text that he oversees a few people. So he's an important figure in the Roman government. Most history would tell us that centurions oversaw about 100 people. So the text is letting you know we have an important figure and he's so important that when his, when his servant begins to be sick, he's able to call the Jewish elders, the people that lead the faith communities. And he says, here, you go do this for me. So we know we're dealing with someone of importance, but then his servant begins to be sick and he deeply loves this servant. Actually, the word that he uses here is like you would use for like your dearly loved child. So he really cares about this servant. And he sends the elders of the Jews to Jesus. And look with me in verses four through five. What do these faith leaders do to Jesus? To get his attention, they say, hey, we have someone who's worthy of your time. That he actually really loves this nation. And actually, he even funded our synagogue. So it would be really advantageous. It would be a good idea if you went and healed this man's servant because we kind of need him. Their approach is to get God's attention by what? Telling them why he is worthy of his time. So this is the first approach we see. The Jewish elders bring their resume to Jesus. They say, look, here's everything you need to know and here's why this is important. Because in their paradigm, the only way that you get the attention of someone is by explaining to them why you are worthy of it. And this is pretty 21st century of the Bible. Because the elders here, they're basically doing what? We have a word for this today, they're they're networking. They're networking with Jesus. Hey, here's his business card. Here's why you wanna talk to him. He's a pretty big deal, go help the centurion. I don't know if you've ever had to network in New York City, but there are two questions that every networking event they will ask you. Does anyone know what, does anyone know one question? This is the actual question. What do you do? That's definitely one of them. The, the, two pri- the, one, the two primary ones that I love in New York though are, where do you live and how long have you been in the city? Right, because you can tell if the person can serve your needs really in those two questions. So watch, I'll give you an example. How long have you been in the city? Oh, six months, oof, red flag. Not a lot of resources, probably don't know anyone in the city. And then it gets worse, where, where do you live? Hoboken, I'm out, right? You just said they're not gonna help you, so you keep moving, right? And if you're in ministry, there's another question. It's, do you know Tim Keller or A.R. Bernard? Do you know those people? And if you don't, you're, you're toast. But why do we ask these questions? It's because in the West, in the 21st century, the way that we understand relationships is we see them as something that could be useful to us. That if we can find someone of importance and attach ourselves to them, maybe we can get where they are at. Maybe they will take us to where we want to go. And so the Jewish elders, they follow this approach with Jesus. That, hey, Jesus, you're doing a lot of cool things, and we want to we be a part of what you're doing, but we need you to serve our purposes. We need you to help out the people that have helped us out, that built our synagogue. Would you please network with us? 
But you probably know that this is not how it works in the kingdom of God. That you do not get God's attention by showing him your LinkedIn, your academic record, your vocation, and all your talents. But rather, we do not approach God and show him our resume. But if we are in Christ, we show him his. Do you see that difference? That if we are in Christ, we believe we can get God's attention whenever we want, not because of what we have done. Thank God, because if it was based on what we have done, we would be in real trouble. But we can approach God and say, because of what you have done, you will listen to me. You will hear my prayers. You will fellowship with me. You will commune with me. And the things that I want, you want them for me as well. That we approach Christ with his resume, not ours. And so the elders, if they were truly understood who Jesus was, they would not need to ask for his attention because they would realize they already have it. You see that? I have a professor of mine who, he tells me this story that every night he has two little girls. And every night before bed, he gets his two girls and he says, okay, girls, how much does dad love you? And the kids go, this much. And he goes, that's right, that's right. Now, why does dad love you that much? And they say back immediately, because we are your daughters. Now, why do they say that? Why do they say that response? My professor says, it's because I want them to know my love for them is based in the only identity that will never change. That if they respond, it's because we're obedient, it's because we're cute, all those things will change. But the one thing that will always be the same is their identity as his daughters. And that's the very same thing with Christ. That if we are in Christ, we are sons and daughters of God. And we get to say, God, you will listen to me. I have your ear. Why? Because I am your son, I am your daughter. That we do not think that we have God's attention because of who we are, but because of whose we are. And if you get that distinction, it will change your life. It will utterly change your life. Tim Keller puts it like this. The only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that kind of access. That's the kind of access that you have with the one who created you in this entire world. So in our first approach, we see we should not be like the Jewish elders. We don't want to network with God. We want to be with God. So don't be like them. The second approach, go with me to verse six. You have the centurion. And Christ actually decides to go to the centurion's house after the elders had made their request. And before Christ could even get in, in verse six, he sends his friends and he says to Jesus, please don't even come in. I'm actually not worthy to even have you under my roof. And if I'm honest, I didn't think you'd even come. Do you notice the difference? The Jewish elders say, he's worthy. He's worth your time. He's an investment. I promise you, we got to do this. And then when Jesus meets him, he says, I'm not even worthy to have you in my house. You see, the Jewish elders, the faith community leaders, have just been outdone by an unfaithful Roman. Has that ever happened to you? I feel like some of the most Christian people I know aren't even Christian. 
And sometimes they do things that I should be doing, but I'm not. I remember this story that I had a friend of mine from high school, and I was just recently visiting with him. And he had just come to know the Lord. I mean, he, was, he wasn't even a baby Christian. He was like an embryo Christian. Like he was like a couple days in. And he was on fire for the Lord. I was talking to him. And I don't know, I've been a Christian for almost 20 years. And so I'm used to seeing passionate people fade out real quick. So if I'm honest, I'm a little skeptical, right? He's telling me how his life's going to change. I'm like, yeah, man, I, I hope, I hope, right? You know? And then one of my family members walks up. A family member who doesn't know the Lord. And I was concluding with my friend, you know, hey, see you later. So good to see you. And I was going to hang out with my family member. And my friend says, hey, before I go, and he looks at my family member who does not know the Lord, he says, can I pray for you? And I sat there and I watched this Christian who did not know really anything, but yet he knew enough. And I watched him pray for my family member in ways that I had not prayed for them in years. And I was so convicted that here's someone that doesn't know anything yet, and I think I know everything, yet he's living it out. Sometimes God uses people to show us what we ought to be doing. And then in verse 7, what I want you to see is that he says, Lord, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Do you see what he's doing? It's fantastic. He says, Lord, I don't even deserve to have you under my roof. Don't come in. Don't come in. But since you're here, if you could help out, it would be great, actually. It's like when you have people over for dinner and they're like, we'll do the dishes. And you're like, no, no, no. And then they turn the water on. And you're like, okay, the soap's over there. And then make sure you do that, right? But what he displays is this blend of complete humility. I don't deserve to even talk to you. But also utter boldness. But I know you can heal him. Just say the word. And then notice, Jesus loves it. Jesus looks back in verse 9, and he says, I have not seen faith this great, not even in Israel. Remember, he's talking to the Jewish leaders. That is such a dig. That is like, I mean, if you get it, that's a really good dig. It's like when you have someone over as a kid for dinner, and they're really like, your friend is really like full of manners, and your mom looks at you and is like, it's so nice to have someone over who has manners. And you're like, message received, right? That's a little bit of what Christ is doing here. He's like, pay attention. But notice that Jesus loves when we approach him with humility and boldness. That we ought to approach Christ with humility and boldness. And we see this in Jesus' ministry. When these two are combined, he loves it. I think of Matthew 15 with the Canaanite woman. She goes to Jesus and she says, please, we need your help. And Jesus originally says no, but she persists. She's bold. And Jesus says, I like that. You got it. I think on Mark 9, when the, when the, when the man, his, his father, his son is sick and he needs healing and he says, Jesus, I'm going to be honest, I barely believe, would you help my unbelief? And Jesus says, that is what I'm looking for. And he heals him. Jesus seems to love it when people humbly know who he is, but also boldly expect him to move. That there is an important beautiful mixture that God moves when people address him that way. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the Christian news outlets, but there's actually quite an extraordinary event that is taking place right now. On Wednesday, February 8th, 
a small Christian university called Asbury University in the suburbs of Louisville, Kentucky, was having their weekly chapel service like they've had for decades. This chapel service is very normal as far as there's three songs, there's a sermon, two songs, and they're out. Students file in, students file out. But on February 8th, something happened. Everything was normal. The sermon, the guy who preached it, literally got in his car and texted his wife and said that was a flop. The chapel concludes. All the faculty goes back and teaches their classes. But about a group of 40 students just stayed. And they started to pray. And they started to repent and confess sin and to worship God boldly. And they stayed for an hour and two hours. And they stayed through the night. And then they stayed the next day and the next day and the next day. And what was 40 students turned into 50, turned into 100, turned into 200. And this is what it looks like literally right now. I want you to see this photo. A chapel of 1,500 people is completely packed out with 50,000 people outside waiting to get in. They have not stopped praying and worshiping and humbly approaching God and saying, God, we want you to move. And this very same revival has spread out to colleges like Azusa in California, to Wheaton in Illinois, to Belmont in Tennessee. And all of a sudden, more and more news outlets, this is even in the New York Times, have begun to cover this story. And they're saying, at first we were skeptical. We thought it was a manipulation of the Holy Spirit and, and people were just using this for clout. But every person that goes to experience it comes out and says, God is moving in that room because we're seeing the next generation humbly approach God and saying, God, we want you to move and we're not leaving until you do. And I want us to have that posture. That as the next generation is hungry for God, they don't want a fake service. They don't want a show. They don't want legalism. They want Christ and him crucified and him risen. John Tyson has a beautiful phrase when it comes to revival. He says, do you know where God goes? God goes where he is wanted. That if you want revival, that's what you need. God goes to where he is wanted. There has never been a revival in human history where God showed up and people didn't want it. One professor went to go visit this chapel service. And he was skeptical. He said, man, I grew up in some charismatic circles and I saw people try to abuse the spirit and, and try to tell me things that weren't true. So I, I, don't, I don't know if I buy it. And he came out and this is what he said after spending just a few hours there. Anyone who has spent time at Asbury can testify that the promised comforter is present and powerful. I can't analyze or even adequately describe all that is happening. But there is no doubt in my mind that God is present and he is active. I remember reading that this week and I said, I wonder if someone would visit my church and they would say that. That they would come in and they would say, man, I don't know what I just experienced, but I will tell you, God is real and God is active. I can't articulate it. I can't explain it. But I've seen too much. And I don't know what you live for, but as someone in ministry, I live for revival. I long for the day when the churches in Brooklyn are streaming with people just waiting in line. I can't wait to experience what God is doing in that building. 
I want to see prodigals come home. I want to see marriages restored. I want to see my family members and friends repenting, confessing sin and following Jesus and doing good deeds in the city. I can't wait until my city is a place where people don't forsake their faith, but it's ignited. I want to see revival take place in New York as it is in heaven, people. And I know that you do too. I've been thinking a lot about revival this week as it's in the news everywhere. And there's a term that people study this discipline. It's called missiology. And as people study revivals over the history of the course of church history, they want to know what was the common denominator that set off every single revival. Because there's been different revivals in different denominations. And if you ask Presbyterians, they'll say, oh, whenever revival broke out with us, it's because of our high view of God, our theology, our high view of scripture. If you ask Baptists, they'll say it's because of our emphasis on the Great Commission in Matthew 28. If you ask Pentecostals, they'll say it's our emphasis on the spirit and watching God work. But do you know what the common denominator is? It's hunger. Every time it is hunger. That people begin to be fed up. And they say, you know what? I know God is real and I'm not going to box him in anymore. And they do like the students at Asbury and they say, we're not leaving, Lord, until we see you move. And the very good thing is that you don't have to go to Asbury, Kentucky to experience revival. Someone say, praise God. You just have to stay right here. You can experience revival right now. I pray that we grow in hunger for the Lord and we would approach our Lord like the centurion does and say, God, we don't even deserve to talk to you, but by your grace, we can. And since you're here, we're gonna watch you move. That we don't think that God could fix and heal and restore our city. We know he will, and we're gonna watch him do it. That's the faith of the centurion. And I pray that's our faith too. I wanna go to the very last approach, which is a different story in verse 11. What you see here is that you see Jesus is going to a new town and he sees on the outside of the gate, there's a funeral taking place. And the text is trying to show you that this woman has just lost her one and only son. And then the text says, oh, by the way, she's a widow. She's lost her husband too. And in a Greco-Roman context, this was a patriarchal society, sadly. And so men tended to be the only source of income in the household. And so what the text is telling you is that this woman has not just lost her husband, she's not just lost her son, she's lost her dignity. And she's most likely is probably gonna have to sell herself because most women who are widows would have to go into prostitution. And so she's weeping, yes, probably because she has significant loss, but she's weeping probably because the future looks very, very bleak. And in this story, no one asked Jesus to do anything. They don't even know he's there. And based on the text, they don't even know who he is. But it says that Jesus, in verse 13, was moved with compassion. Every time you see that in the New Testament, underline it. Remind yourself that the God of the universe incarnate is filled with compassion. And he says in verse 13, do not weep. And yes, he restores the family, but he also restores the woman's dignity. You see that? This is a dual miracle, that he changes the future of that family. Dr. Lynn Kohick, who's a New Testament professor, she says this about this text. 
She says, the most stunning thing about Jesus and relating to women is that every woman he meets, he treats them like regular people. And Jesus, unlike his day, took women seriously. That Jesus seemed to be in the business of meeting with the most marginalized and oppressed in the society, pointing them out and saying, I am here to help. And we see that in this text. But what I also want you to notice is first, Christ is the one to approach here. So we've been through two examples of how not to approach Christ. And then we saw a good example in the centurion of how to approach Christ. And then now in this one, Christ approaches us. And you get really Christ's whole ministry in this one story. Let me show you. See, first, Christ has compassion. Second, Christ approaches. And third, Christ looks at death and cures it. That's his whole ministry. That before he came to this earth, he had compassion for his people. And then he approached us. We did not approach him. And he looked at death on the cross and he said, do not weep. I will fix this too. That's his whole ministry. George Herbert, the 17th century poet, put it like this. Death used to be an executioner, but because of the gospel, it has made him just a gardener. And that's good news. I want you to see in this text that this is a foreshadow for how Christ will deal with death. That every time Christ sees death in the New Testament, he absolutely hates it. You know, often as Christians, when someone in our life dies, there's this temptation to pretend like we don't have to be sad because we'll see them later on. And to an extent, that's true, right? But also, if you look at the New Testament, every time Jesus sees someone die, he hates it. When his best friend Lazarus dies, it says that Jesus wept. That every time someone experienced or tasted death, Jesus says, this is not how it was supposed to be. And I'm coming to fix it. I'm going to make all things new. And so in this text, you begin to see Jesus' ministry. That he will not let death have the last word. Fred Craddock, who is a distinguished Old New Testament professor and um, preacher, he used to end his sermons with this really great story of his childhood. He said when he was a kid, him and his sister loved to play hide and seek. The only problem was that his sister always cheated. So the rule was she had to go to the porch and she had to count to 100 while Fred would go hide. She'd go up there, she'd go 1, 2, 99, 100. She'd go find him, right? And Fred had this one spot though, right under the stairs of their porch that he was small enough to get into, and she could not. And so he'd sit there, and he'd hide. And she'd go looking for him, and he'd sit there, and he'd go, oh, man, she's, she's never going to find me. She's never going to find me. And sure enough, she could not find him. And after a while, it started to occur to him, she's not going to find me. She's not going to find me. So after a while, he'd stick his toe out. And then she'd come by and she said, I found you, I found you. And he'd say, yes, you did, yes, you did. And Fred Craddock would always end his sermons and he'd say, what did I want? Did I really want to hide? He wanted the same thing that you and I wanted, which is we want to be found. We want so badly for someone to approach us 
and say, I have found you. That is the type of God that we serve. That he leaves the 99 to find the one. That he welcomes the prodigal home. That he seeks and saves the lost. And though you and I have built a life full of sin, shame, and sadness, and we hide in the shell of a body that we have, we so desperately want to be found. And as we look at the approaches of what it looks like to approach Christ, we must be reminded he first approached us. He first found us. And the only reason why you can find God today is because he found you first. And praise God that he found you. And so I want to just end today. I don't know where you are personally. You might have been invited by a friend. This is your first time. You might have been a Christian 20 years. But I want to us to remind us, in this story, who are we? Do we approach Christ and say, Christ, this is what I did. Do I have your affection? Do I have your attention? Or are we the centurion saying, God, I know I can't even, I, should, I shouldn't even be allowed to speak to you, but grace I can, and I want you to move. And when was the last time that you remembered what it felt like to be found? You remember that feeling of, I have been found by the one who matters. So, Crossroads Church, let us put down our resumes. Let us approach God humbly and with complete boldness. And let's remember what it's like to feel like when we are found. So that we can be like the crowd, like it says in verse 16, and say, God has visited his people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are a good father. That at the end of the day, you have found us. And it is our choice if we want to receive you. But God, at the end of the day, you first approached us. You first loved us. And you have good plans for us. And you knit us in our mother's womb, God. And you have not forgotten us. I pray for the people in this room, God, that feel far from you or feel like they don't know you, God. Would you make yourself real to them? God, I pray for those of us in the room that need to experience revival in our hearts, in our churches, in our workplace, in our families. Would you make yourself and your spirit feel anew in those places? God, we ask for your nearness, your comfort, and your grace, and we ask that as we go into this week that we would be near to you, that we would experience you. We're so grateful for the sacrifice of your son and all that you've done for us. Amen.